One of the most popular past episodes of Everything is Workable, airing way back in 2016, was about grief. In this episode, I revisit the topic with Jean Burlsheimer, an interfaith Buddhist chaplain who leads workshops and supports conversations for those who are grieving. Jean has a special focus on grief around violent or sudden death. Informed by her personal and professional experience, Jean speaks about the importance of honoring our grief, learning to see it as an aspect of our relationships and experience, through staying open to the depths of our sadness and finding healing in ritual practice. In particular, she talks about the practice of bearing witness, which she describes as allowing what arises to be there without the need to fix it or change it. She explains how this is a practice we do for ourselves, but it also enables us to show up meaningfully for others. Such a practice is one of respect and honoring what is there without turning away, but also without getting lost, so we can respond skillfully and wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for making time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable, because I have wanted to do another episode on grief for a very, very long time, so I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It's my pleasure. So I always start off by asking my guests to speak a bit about their background and what brought them to the work that they're doing, any kind of formative experiences or shifts uh, in their life. And I like to put that out there as the experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering. Boy, it's not, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. It, the Work I do and I would say more aspire to do in terms of grief comes from the fact that my sister died suddenly at the age of 23. She was murdered and I was two years older and my family didn't really, we didn't talk about her for decades and we didn't. Um, I think at that time, this was 1973, there probably weren't support services, but the, the family I grew up in, that my parents wouldn't have, wouldn't have sought something like that anyway. So I had this grief that was very deeply embedded in my, in my bones and my soul, and I didn't really relate to it other than some occasional tears. I had, you know, a little bit of therapy, but I never worked with anybody who could address grief. So that, I think, was that just planted a seed in me, but I didn't know for, you know, many, many years until I did a long retreat how deep the grief was and how much I needed to express it and let it be in my life. So I, I think that's, in, in my, my professional life is totally unrelated. So I, this was it's very much a personal journey. So I've, I've got a lot of questions uh, mm-hmm. around yeah. your experience of grief, uh, both personally and then professionally and like working with it. But I think just to start off, I go on a lot about how the definition is not inherent in a word <laughs> and yeah. grief mm-hmm. is a beautiful example of this. Cause sometimes people they'll, they'll say like, Oh sure it is. And then I'll say something like, go ahead, define love. You know, <laughs> but I think like <laughs> grief is another one of those words uh, that you can have a description for what it is, but uh, it's so experiential. Yes. 
So when you talk about grief, how do you understand the word and how you use it? Well, I understand it as uh, this feeling of great sadness around a loss. And, you know, I used to think that if I cried enough, mm. it would go away. But actually, grief is part of my life. And I believe it's part of everyone's life. It doesn't have to be just grief around the loss of a loved one. There's grief for many different things. Just look around, you know, what's going on with our planet today. Mm. So it's a feeling of just deep sadness. And it has could have other aspects like um, being lost or feeling like just helpless. But I think it's the sadness. To me, that's the main thing. I really appreciate what you just said about uh, grief coming and like it being something that comes in lots of different shapes and forms. And mm -hmm. there is a misconception that grief has a set pattern and follows some kind of path mm -hmm. and is related only to death. But like, I've, I've come to really appreciate in my life that there's a lot of grief when a relationship mm -hmm. ends. Mm, yeah. Cause you know, you're grieving the relationship, you're grieving oh, that yeah. person not being in your life. And then the quality of the sadness is related to that. So speaking about grief when it's really traumatic, and I, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's like a, a right way to describe it, like traumatic grief. Um, mm -hmm. But I have experienced this in my life. I've had, I've lost friends, a um, family friend who died of an aneurysm, and I've lost a friend to suicide, a classmate who died quite suddenly of heart failure. So could you talk a bit about navigating grief when it's sudden? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very different and maybe less understood. I guess I'd describe it as the, the grief around a sudden loss. It's the loss that's sudden. And the grief, absolutely, the grief can just hit you, but it can hit you suddenly even after in a so-called normal or expected death. It's something we're just not familiar with, so most of us anyway. So we feel like we get slammed. But when it's a sudden death, it just makes no sense. And we, as human beings, we want our lives to make sense. We expect our lives to make sense. And we have a story about who we are and how we are in the world and who our family is. And we have some, we have a lot of illusions about having control about mm. the way things are and the way things will continue to be. And then something happens and we just get totally slammed and we don't know how to navigate it. And because we live in a culture that is grief averse, we don't get much support to learn how to deal with it. And so there, in, in terms of um, sudden death, there, there are particular reactions that people have that are, I think, pretty unique to a sudden death, like imagining how the death was and reliving, perhaps, even if though we weren't there in most cases, but have sort of having the scene of the death unfold in our mind and getting sort of caught there. That happened to me with my sister's death. A lot of regret at not having, you know, having things that are unsaid, say a parent or some, someone with a, a known disease is dying. 
we have time. We think, well, and, and sometimes we take the opportunity, sometimes we don't, but we can speak to them and say that we love them or what they've meant to us. But when somebody dies suddenly, we've lost that opportunity. Relationships are unfinished. It's, you know, so it's pretty, it's pretty complex. What do we do with this story that is it's not what we wanted? And other people don't want to talk about it. Even people who have a similar close relationship with the person who died. Mostly, in my experience anyway, people talk about it a little bit and accept the comfort, accept the casseroles that show up for uh-huh. the first couple of weeks. And then it's, it, our society gives us the message, okay, that's enough. Move on. Yes, this is a horrible thing. And... Now, just move on. Don't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, many pe- I've definitely had the experience of mentioning something either about, uh, well, I had a sister that died, or uh, we did a bearing witness retreat at Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, mm. about a year and a half ago. Very intense, powerful experience. And the number of people who didn't ask about it was shocking. So... I think it's a similar thing. It's like, whoa, this is this is too heavy for me, and I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. We also, our society promotes, you know, trying to make things better and fix things. And there's nothing to say except that, wow, heavy duty, or I'm so sorry that this person died, or m- most many people are not comfortable at that level. So it's like, okay, let's look away, or let's talk about the weather. good old weather so safe i'm definitely going to come back to the bearing witness because i feel as a practice bearing witness is yes very powerful Mm -hmm. uh but i want to sort of if we could dig in a little bit more about the misconceptions about grief and what you were saying about you know getting over it kind of or moving Mm -hmm. through it um actually i feel like moving through it is very different than getting over it (laughs) yeah yeah. Uh, so yeah, like people will talk about closure or there's sort of an impatience and yes. even from people who are also directly impacted to, mm-hmm. I don't know, just let it go in some sense. I guess, I guess the question there is something about understanding the process of healing as it relates to grief and loss, you know, from a point of view of a Buddhist practice as like the, the past doesn't go anywhere, right? It exists yeah. in the present. Right. And so it, for me, my experience with grief is like learning the new normal mm-hmm. and the new normal in the absence of that person in my life yeah. or the absence of that relationship. Yeah. So, and then, then do you want to call that normal? <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> Good is, point. It, is my normal, does this mean I'm sad all the time? And what I learned is, you know, I was afraid to dive into this deep sadness around my sister's death. I felt like I would be overwhelmed and just kind of stuck there. And then, you know, I was doing this long retreat and it just came up and I just felt like, okay, I can't not be here. I have to, I have to be, I have to hear it. I have to feel it. But what I learned through letting it be there, really bearing witness to 
this deep sadness, what came out sort of at the other end is, is the possibility of holding great sadness and joy at the same time. Mm. So it's not one thing. And that has been tremendously helpful to me. I don't feel lost in grief. I, I mean, a lot of things these days are, I find grief worthy, <laughs> but you know, and, and I, I'll have tears about my sister sometimes, but I don't feel caught there. I feel like, okay, my relationship with her includes grief and that's, that loss is certainly huge, but I also can remember things about her that were sweet and things that we did together that were silly and joyful. And so to me, that's been, that, that's been a big part of this journey is learning that it's not all one thing. Mm-hmm. I, I liked what you said about how you had this feeling like if you cried enough, it would go away. Yeah. So what have been the tools and like that shift? Because, uh, you know, from point of view of being a practitioner, doing a, a retreat and understanding that meditation is an amazing tool that we have to be really present with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, was like your experience of of learning to accept and not trying to make it go away. Yeah, and I did... Uh, some other sort of more active things. Once I realized that I was living in this grief and I needed to do the work, I also, um, I don't think I knew quite where I was going with it, but I, so in this retreat, you're, uh, we were basically in silence for a long time. It was a, almost a years long retreat. Wow. And yeah, and there were restrictions about letters we could write. We had no, uh, you know, internet access. But so I hand wrote a letter to one of my childhood friends asking her if she had any memories of Anne. And just writing the letter was helpful. So that was a, you know, a beginning of a conversation. And she made copies of my letter and sent it to two other friends, childhood friends. Mm-hmm. So they all wrote back. And they didn't, there weren't a lot of memories. Anne was very shy mm-hmm. and quiet. And so when, you know, I would have friends over to the house, she'd usually jump into whatever we were doing. And we probably didn't invite her in. <laughs> That's how it is. <laughs> you know, but still putting that out there that I was wanting to hear stories. I say I didn't get stories other, no, nothing really, but my writing process was helpful. Mm. Um, I also wrote to, so my parents had both died by the time I was in this retreat. And, but I wrote to one of my mother's friends who was a, who was very, I was very close to too. And I asked her if, uh, my mother ever talked about Anne or shared her grief. And this woman wrote back, basically not answering my question and saying, <laughs> you should go be with your daughter and do, <laughs> I don't know, whatever it's like. So it was a generational thing, at least in the, this 
culture, waspy culture I grew up in, to not deal with this kind of stuff. So this is part of, I think, partly responding to your question. What emerged for me over a couple of months was a ritual that I wanted to do for Anne. Mm -hmm. A ritual of, um, I thought of it as saying goodbye, but later realized it wasn't so much saying goodbye, it was was a healing. And I'm a real believer in ritual. It just sort of emerged for me. And I, I... I wrote it down, and and then I carried out this ritual during retreat by myself. I didn't tell anybody I was doing it, and other people were doing the retreat, and I certainly didn't want to disturb anybody. But it it had a lasting effect for me. That might not be somebody else's path, but I feel like acknowledging great loss or a transition of any kind is important. It's not something our culture does very well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I feel like that's a very important thing to point out to um, about what you were saying about a culture that is grief, a grief averse. And that when mm-hmm. we say something like that, or like you're talking from a perspective of, I, I mean, you've said wasp, <laughs> so white Anglo-Saxon Protestant yeah. background. Um, and then I know, yes, I definitely, in my upbringing, I, um, on my, paternal side have uh, British colonial ancestry and that mm, definitely yeah. came through very grief averse there but interestingly on my my mother's side I have a Métis ancestry and interestingly Métis <laughs> so Métis um, were a, they are peoples that were the mix of indigenous people and French people so it's the children mm. of um, French and indigenous people in mm. Canada before Canada was Canada quite uh-huh. yeah. and they wanted to create a culture that was a blending and celebration of two different kinds of ancestry mm-hmm. um, so a lot of indigenous practices came down um, and it, it was it was from lots of different tribes and I've I've learned in my family history that a lot of the influence was from Cree practices, um, Mm -hmm. the Prairie Cree peoples. And my mom was very good at talking about death and loss Mm. and grief with my brother and I when we were kids. So it's interesting because I like grew up in a household where I had one parent who was incredibly grief averse and one parent Mm. who was not. But I think it's, it's beautiful what you said about, you know, creating ritual and realizing that practices of ritual are one of those things that are removed and denied through the construct of white supremacy in particular. Mm-hmm. And so that's like a, I feel like that's an important thing to name. Mm-hmm. And, and then to go into that, the practice of bearing witness. Because yes. I feel like that is very much a ritual thing. So what's mm-hmm. your understanding of bearing witness and the importance that that has as anyone is going through a process of grief or living with grief? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is a big part of chaplaincy training and it sounds like you're already there, but but just allowing what arises to be there without the need to fix it or change it, both in terms of the, the other's uh, experience and one's own. So sometimes, you know, being with someone who is having a really hard time, we, of course, we want to give advice. We want to make the situation better. But mostly that's not helpful. It's just being 
allowing whatever arises to be present. And so we can do that in my journey of grief. The first, this deep experience I had on retreat was bearing witness to my own grief, not pushing it away, not saying, okay, enough to actually respect what was there. I think that also speaks to the relationship between our personal stories of grief and how that helps us connect with others. Because like grief is a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the important thing to name around that is we should not police how people grieve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that in our culture. It, it may be changing somewhat. I, I don't know. I mean, the more recent models of grief don't talk about such rigid stages. That's more fluid. Yes. Yes. Actually, that's great. Could you unpack that a little bit? Because that's a big thing I've encountered a lot where people have this idea that, so there are the stages of grief, which listeners might be familiar with, but Mm -hmm. that the misconception around that is that those are set. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And people, you know, reference uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who delineated these five stages, but actually her stages were for people who were themselves dying. And they've been applied to the people who were grieving. So it's not quite the same. The, the main thing I see in the literature is more, it's more fluid that we don't do, we don't do one thing like denial and then we move on to anger and then we move on to whatever is next. It's not like that, that there's a, there may be an overwhelming response of one particular kind and then it shifts and then we may go back and back and forth and trying to integrate a whole range of feelings eventually in for a healthy person sort of mm, honoring grief and allowing it to be with us while the word is often used re-engaging in uh, new relationships, other aspects of our world, and not being just so frozen in some reaction, a grief reaction that we can't move on. And that happens to some people, and they need some help, actually, to move on. But it's it's more fluid. And it's been, I'll say for myself, having done a lot of grief work in a personal way, and that was about 10 years ago when I was on this retreat. My sister died, you know, decades ago. Mm. And it doesn't mean I don't feel sad. I do. Uh, but it's not the whole thing. So it's recognizing mm. that mm, that's part of being human. Part of being in this world is really getting it. Oh, yeah, there is suffering and there is loss and there's change and there's impermanence. Buddhism talks about this very explicitly, but it's as some teachers say, the Buddhists didn't make it up. This is, <laughs> this is the way, this is the characteristic of life. Things are changing and anything that is born will die. Um, so how can, we, how can we be with that? Mm-hmm. There's two pieces there that I feel, um, two little directions I want to go with this. There's the both and thing. Mm -hmm. And then I guess what I'll start though with is just 
the human condition part, you know, yeah. at the beginning of my show, I asked people, what is your move from I am suffering to there is suffering. And I got that directly from a teaching I heard from Elizabeth Mattis Namgo, mm-hmm. uh, when she talks about the story of Gotami and the mustard seed. Mm-hmm. Where for listeners who don't know, Gotami's uh, child dies and she goes to the Buddha and asks him to bring her child back to life. And the Buddha says, I can do that, but you must bring me a mustard seed from a home that has never experienced death. And of course, she can find no such seed. So what have you discovered about that sort of shifting? And, and particularly when working with other people, because I think for anybody who's like showing up to try and be there for someone who's grieving, that is really hard to navigate. Because the, the thing about like the story of Gotami is she still lost her child. And that's really deeply sad. Yeah. Um, so it's not dismissing the sadness, but it's seeing it more from a very big perspective. Yeah. And... As you say, it doesn't, it doesn't take away the sadness, but there's some, I don't know, it's not, you know, there's that saying, misery love co- loves company. It's not <laughs> that. But there is some element of that. It's like, oh yeah, I am not the only one who has lost a sister. And if you tell me, well, there's a certain understanding. I, I mentioned it to a relatively new friend recently, and she said, oh, I didn't know about this, and my brother was murdered. And so there's some instant understanding of what that, what that is like. But that's very particular, but it doesn't... I do hospice volunteering, and so I sit with people who are dying or sit with a loved one, And it's just being able to be there and allow that sadness, which might manifest in many different ways. I think I've lost track of your your question. (laughs) No, 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 that's really good. And I think then that feeds in well with the the both and aspect of things. So holding two emotions or three or four, like holding multiple emotions at the same Mm -hmm. time. Let's dig into that a little bit more. What you've learned about for yourself being open to the fact that you can experience both joy and sadness at the same time. And then how you communicate that with people and create that like in in being present with them, bearing witness. It's having a really deep conviction that there is no one right way to grieve, which you mentioned and, and society wants to impose. It's letting another person know that in some way you, we, we, can't, we can't really walk in someone else's shoes, hmm. but we can feel, we can acknowledge the great sadness and the sorrow and sorrow that this person is going through such sadness. And if, if this is an ongoing relationship, checking in and inviting the person who is really grieving to say the name of their loved one, to tell stories about them, to um, let them be in the world even after they have departed this particular world, right? I think that's really helpful. You know, nobody really asked me or talked to me about my sister ever. I mean, once I think a friend asked if they'd ever found person that killed her which they did not Mm. but 
I think it's just ha- having an open invitation. It may not be even with words, but with just being present. If somebody wants to, you know, if, I mean, there's a, I think that the Jewish custom of sitting Shiva, mm-hmm. which uh, for people who don't know, I don't know so much about it, but after someone dies, the close family has a week of saying prayers in their home and people can come and talk about the person and share stories and participate in in the ritual. I think it's really very powerful and very healthy. So I I think just being present for whatever it might be, if the if the griever what comes up for them is railing at the death, just, you know, intense grief. Or if it's sort of numbness or you know, wanting to tell funny stories, all of it, it's okay. It's not one thing. So I, I think it, it takes, I think meditation practice really supports this because if anything, I aspire to develop some greater stability of mind, some greater equanimity. So somebody's telling me a story that's a really hard one. I aspire to be able to hear it and not tune out. That's a practice, though. Yeah, the holding people's stories sacred. Yeah, mm-hmm. and being being grateful. I feel it's a it's a, actually it's a privilege if somebody tells me their story. Mm-hmm. But what about? And I feel like this is a very important thing to name the relationship of or the the aspect of anger in grief. And I bring that up very specifically because, from a personal level, and then also from talking to friends in a grieving process, being angry at the loss and how you work with that. And I mean, in your case, for your personal story, you've got uh, anger that can be directed at somebody who took your sister's life, but also anger that can be directed at the person who died. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty common thing. And also something that's often not deemed okay. And I, I remember expressing some anger uh, within, I don't know, the first few years after Anne's death. But again, it's my relating with my grief, all the emotions, was mostly done, almost entirely done on my own. This I used to do some solitary uh, cabin retreats in a, at a meditation center in Vermont. And a couple of times, you know, the heavy crying would come up and I remember just sort of pounding my fists and yelling. And yeah, it feels like such a violation. Like, why did you leave me? Why did you put yourself in this situation? Why did you, whatever. Because that my sister's murderer was never identified, I, you know, I sort of wonder if there was anything I could do about that. I would want to know if there was a reason. And I don't know at this point that I particularly feel anger. Oh, it was maybe seven or eight years ago I had jury duty. And in the case that I, I don't know, they seem to do it differently different times, but the the jury pool was in the courtroom with uh, where the lawyers each gave a little synopsis of their stuff. And the accused and the victim 
were both there in this case. And it was a case of domestic abuse. And my sister may have been killed by someone she was dating. Mm. We don't know that. But I don't know if that was a factor, but I felt nauseous. It, it was really visceral. So I said, I, I have to take myself. I don't think I'm qualified because here's what's coming up. And, and because I had a sister who was murdered, possibly domestic, I was shocked at my, uh, this gut reaction I had. And I assume it was because, you know, possible parallel. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I've been, um, I do window visits at the county jail mm-hmm. with people who request a Buddhist. Often that's short term, but I've been seeing this one man for, oh, at least a year and a half. And a couple of months ago, so you, the regular, the lawyer visits take place in a soundproof room. So it's, there's a door on either side and those uh, rooms are not recorded. There isn't a recording system, my understanding. So I come in as a volunteer chaplain and I don't get one of those rooms, but it happened a couple months ago. This guy was meeting with his lawyer when mm-hmm. I got there. So I just sat myself down in a different booth until they were done. And then when the lawyer left, Bill just motioned for me to come over there. So this is all to say we had a private situation. So this was the first time he told me what happened. Mm, okay. And I knew he was in for some variation of murder, you know, a mm-hmm. heavy duty thing. And he told me this, what happened and he was crying and, you know, and I cried a little bit and I know him, you know, I know that he's a decent human being. I know he's trying to work with his stuff. And I'm not afraid of him. But meeting, you know, what what would I do with my sister's murderer if I met him? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about it, but I I don't. My the feeling that comes up right now isn't really anger so much. It's an interesting thing, like that that evolution you're talking about of how it moves and shifts over time. And- yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially when you are willing to just sit with it. Yeah. That helps that mm-hmm. shifting over time. Yeah. And I, I then feel like this is always a very important aspect with pretty much all of my guests. <laughs> you do some heavy duty work. You're showing mm-hmm. up for, you've got your own, your own story and you're showing up for other people in what are really painful and poignant situations. Um, what have you learned about self care? as it relates Mm. to community care and the work you do? Yeah, yeah, it's a really important question. Well, my life right now is is pretty easy. I'm retired. I'm 70 years old. I'm retired. And so I don't have this daily go to the grind. I had work that that was meaningful to me, but I feel like I have some resources inner resources to step into situations that are challenging. And I continue to look for more places to be of service. So one of the things that the chaplaincy training really gave me was uh, the importance of developing some resilience 
and accessing resources. So for me, I live on beautiful Vashon Island. I can take a walk. I can walk for, oh, a short distance, less than a mile, and be right on the beach, a rocky beach. That sounds perhaps kind of simplistic, but really being near the water, hearing the sounds and the seeing this, this sparkle on a sunny day and, or even the wildness, that's a resource for me. So stepping into nature in whatever way uh, means something to you. Mm-hmm. I have two beautiful grandchildren on this island. That's why we moved here. They're wonderful. I get to see them pretty often. And so I get to play, mm. play with kids, you know. So there's, uh, uh, I think it's much harder when you work full time and you have demands of family and wanting to do the social justice work. I've, so we've only been out here since April and I'm just finding my way into a couple of groups that are doing progressive kind of work. And so being with other people that are like-minded uh, helps it helps you know mm-hmm. and you know there's so much despair in the world and I feel I could just get terribly discouraged if I didn't have other people working it you know like yeah. they're doing a a group right now uh, based on the Robin D'Angelo book White Fragility mm-hmm. and actually grief came up last month it was uh, I just joined the group last month it was the beginning of this book study and Grief, people were expressing sadness. And and so I brought up the taboo subject of grief. And people are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not the focus of this book, mm-hmm. but it's a, an important thing to deal with. And I'm doing um, a training. I just got accepted to this training with Frances Weller, who wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Mm. And it's about, and I would highly recommend that to anyone. It's not just about personal the grief over the loss of a loved one. It's grief for many, many dimensions of grief. Mm-hmm. And he has a wonderful training in grief ritual, which I've done a couple of times. And now he's, this is the first he's doing a training. So people can be trained to do his work, to lead groups. So just stepping in um, helps me find my my strength and my passion. This is I feel like grief work is my life's work in mm. some way. The way I always close out is just to offer some space for you to to make offerings. So mm. anything you want to leave listeners with that you think would be useful, helpful. Yeah. I guess I would say um, recognize that. There's not one right way to be with grief. And that whatever your experience is, is totally valid and important. What you have to offer is an offering to the world, really. And maybe that just means talking to one friend about your grief experience. Maybe it's speaking up in a meeting or at your church group or whatever. It takes some bravery to do it. And I think it's really worthwhile. And to make use of the resources that are out there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. 
Mm, thank you. This has been really a pleasure. You can reach out to Jean Berlzheimer by email to learn more about the support and workshops that she offers. Her email is jean, J-E-A-N, Berlz, B-E-R-O-L-Z, at gmail.com. Visit caitlinschatch.com to find out more about everything that I do in the world, to read my blog, buy a book, and check out my art gallery. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support my work and practice. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make this the focus of my life. Immense appreciation goes to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Minita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Malkern, Michelle Puckett, and Sierra Love. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 